church and in this ministry in particular we talk a lot about the early church the first century church and i think it's important for us to understand the dynamic in the first century church it was a struggle not only did you have struggles dealing with the civil authorities the romans the occupying romans and you know this whole story takes place in the greco-roman atmosphere right that rome had dominated this whole area and so you had this early church, and they were dealing with the civil authorities. Later on, they were ab- actively persecuted by the civil authorities under Diocletian. Diocletian was the big persecutor. I know everybody thinks of Nero, and Nero did persecute the church. But Diocletian was the guy who really did the major persecutions. But anyway, there was a lot of dealings with the Jews, you know, the infighting with the Jews. Um, one thing that we don't talk about too often is the struggle within the church itself. You know, we know that Paul received the revelation that the church was extended to the Gentiles, that this wasn't just a Jewish thing anymore. Remember, the early church, early church saw themselves as Jews. They were Jews initially, and they saw themselves as Jews who got it right. They were following the Messiah as opposed to the Jews who weren't getting it right, who failed to. That's what the early church thought initially. And then the revelation was given to Paul, and Paul was told that, no, this is Abraham's promise. Remember Abraham's promise? That all the nations of the world would be blessed, not just Israel, but all the nations. And so the church opened up to the Gentiles, okay? So so this is is the church, and that was the church that Peter and Paul were ministering to. But even more than that, it was the church of the ascended and glorified Christ. And that's a term I want to start using in this fellowship more and more. I think it's important because Jesus Christ is ascended and glorified. He has a heavenly ministry. Okay, A good chunk of Christianity doesn't acknowledge that, that Jesus Christ has a heavenly ministry, that he is the ascended and glorified Christ. And this was at the very center of the church that Peter and Paul taught to and and proclaimed. And the gospel, we talked about the gospel too, the good news. Well, what's the good news? That Jesus was ascended and glorified, right? Does that make sense to everybody? So you had in the first century church, you had actually two gospels, two main gospels. One was a true gospel. The other one was a false gospel. The first gospel, of course, like I said, was this ascended and glorified Christ that we have union with Christ, which means that we have Christ in us, but we're also in Christ. So there's this union between the believer and this living Savior. This other gospel, this other church, was the church of the Judaizers. Now, Judaizers were Christians. They were saved, but they looked to the law for their righteousness. And you don't have to turn there, but in Acts 21.20, it says, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. So, and they preached the gospel. 
but their gospel was a false gospel. It was a gospel that was based on works and not on the faith of Jesus Christ. Okay? You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. But Galatians 1 says, Paul's talking to the believers of Galatia. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let him be eternally condemned. So was was it important to Paul to get this thing right? Yeah, just a little bit. Um, anyway, there's a book written by um, David Anderson, and he wrote The Two Ways of the First Century Church. And I just started reading that book, by the way, and it goes into this reference of these two Gospels and of these two churches, okay? Um, it's interesting that, you know, Peter and Paul went out, Peter t- preaching to the circumcision, right? And Paul preaching to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. But it was all, they were teaching the one body, that it was Jew and Gentile alike, right? Jesus Christ is the head of the body. We are the members in particular. They were teaching that throughout these different lands. But in Jerusalem, you had this other church. And, they, and you, can, you can understand that. Because remember, Jerusalem was the center of worship for the Jews, right? And so you had the Christians who live there, well, of course, the atmosphere is going to, you know, have an influence on how they think. And so when we read verses like uh, evil associations corrupt good morals, wow, it takes on a whole different idea when you recognize that here are these Christians who are living amongst these law-bound Christians. One of the interesting things that I've noticed, and I don't know if anybody else has, but Uh, There's this real movement towards the law among Christians. I get this sense that a lot of Christians think that, you know, if you if you talk about grace and you talk about the spirit, just Christian light, that the real meat of Christianity is in the law. And so I see this this movement towards this messianic Christianity or messianic Judaism uh, among Christians. And in fact, uh, I had ongoing discussion last week with a group of them. I was on Twitter, and I uh, I got in with this group of people, and they're a mean bunch. They were a real mean bunch, uh, and they were like a pack of piranhas, and so they were, uh, they were coming after me because I was talking about grace, and uh, very accusative, very uh, denouncing, so I stumbled on a, a real secret, and when you're dealing with people like this, your greatest weapon is ridicule. <laughs> That uh, even though it doesn't sound too godly, if you if you mock them, they go away. And I got the sense I got that sense because I was dealing with a bunch of bullies. Well, what do you do with a bully? You laugh at a bully and a bully will go away. Well, these guys were bullies. The, The good news of that conversation is that one guy stuck around and he was the most even killed of the whole bunch. And he and I actually have a conversation. He gave me his phone number and I gave him mine and we're actually going to talk. But it was an interesting group. Everything that they did was filtered through the Old Testament law. I mean, it was, it was incredible. 
trying to hold a conversation with them about Jesus Christ, I made reference to the ascended and glorified Christ, and they came after me for it. And it was as if I said something wrong. Uh, and we'll get into this. But anyway, this is that was that incident is what inspired this teaching. So Second uh, Corinthians chapter three, verse one. And Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of commendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are the letters of Christ or from Christ. The result of our ministry written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stones but on the tablets of the human heart. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. And let me make a point here. When you read 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is very reproving. And he's down in the trenches. He's saying, you're doing this wrong, and you're doing this wrong, and you're doing this wrong. But when you read 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians gives the spiritual why and wherefore. It gives you the the understanding behind it. So while 1 Corinthians, Corinthians is very pragmatic. Second Corinthians really shows the spiritual heart behind things, which is really kind of cool. So what he's saying here is he's saying, look, you Corinthians, you are the result of my ministry. And it's not a ministry of the law, that which is written on stones, right? The Ten Commandments. But you are the ministry of the spirit, right? And that we're not just talking to your minds, we're talking to your souls, your hearts. The true Christian believer and the church that it represents is this writing upon the heart, that that heart is the center of what we're talking about. This is the spirit of the, and it says living God, and I love that, the spirit of the living God, that in these churches is life, spiritual life. We are living epistles. We are living epistles. Each believer who goes out and is impressed and written upon by this spirit, that believer is a living epistle, right? And the church itself is a living epistle. So Paul is saying this is what our ministry is. It's the sacred secret. We serve a living Savior. Now, far too many Christians have become fixated on the historical Jesus, the Jesus that we find in the Gospels. There's nothing wrong with understanding the Jesus of the Gospels. In fact, I highly recommend learning as much as you can. But the Jesus that we serve now is alive and risen. We walk by a separate rule, a different rule. Remember, Jesus in the Gospels came to whom? The Jews. That's right. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the risen Savior is ours. Right. The one who is to all of us, Jew and Gentile alike. And this ministry that Paul is presenting to them is reliant upon that Holy Spirit. It goes on in verse four. It says such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are confident in ourselves to claim anything of ourselves, but our confidence comes from God. The, the King James Version uses the word sufficiency. And I like that. Now, certainly the, the sufficient spirit will make us competent, right? But the sufficiency shows that there is a, you know, that God has the supply and he's going to give it to us, right? Right? God is giving to us. He supplies us with what we need. Verse 6, it says, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Now listen to this. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. 
for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Wow, that's quite a statement, isn't it? The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. There was this um, excerpt. I've read it in this fellowship before, but I, I love it. It was written by a man named A.W. Tozer. He wrote this. He says, the true ministry is God-touched, God-enabled, and God-made. The Spirit of God is on the preacher in anointing power. The fruit of the Spirit is in his heart, and the Spirit of God has vitalized the man and the Word, and his preaching gives life. This life-giving preacher is a man of God whose heart is ever athirst for God, whose soul is ever following hard after God, and whose eye is single on God, and in whom, by the power of God's Spirit, the flesh and the world have been crucified, and his ministry is like the generous flood of a life-giving river. Isn't that beautiful? I love it. The preaching that kills, on the other hand, is non-spiritual preaching. The ability of the preaching is not from God. Lower sources than God have been given have given to it its energy and stimulant. The spirit is not evident in the preacher nor his preaching. Many kinds of forces may be projected and stimulated by preaching that kills, but they are not spiritual forces. They may resemble spiritual forces, but are only a shadow, a counterfeit. The preaching that kills is the letter. Shapely and orderly it may be, but it is still the letter. The letter may have the germ of life in it, but it has no breath of spring to evoke it. Even divine truth has no life-giving energy alone. It must be energized by the Spirit with all of God's forces at its back. Does that make sense, everybody? I mean, you can sit there and you can quote verses, but unless it's quoted on the lips of a Spirit-filled person, it doesn't have the the power. Remember what Paul said? He said, not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of power, right? For your faith does not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It is only by the preaching, by the Spirit of God that works within the preacher, or, you know, any of us. It, it's not, when I say the preacher, I'm just isolating the preacher for your benefit, but it's all of us. When we speak the word, it's got to be the word spoken via the Holy Spirit within. Okay? It says here, truth unquickened by God's spirit deadens as much as or more than error. It may be the truth without admixture, but without the spirit, its shade and touch are deadly. It's truth, error, it's light, darkness. The letter preaching is unctionless, neither mellowed nor oiled by the spirit. There may be tears, but tears cannot turn God's machinery. Tears may, uh, may be but summer's breath on a snow-covered iceberg, nothing but surface slush. Feelings and earnestness there may be, but it is the emotion of an actor and the earnestness of an attorney. Do you see that? The point here being is that for the minister of God, it's got to be an inside-out deal that God has written on that minister's heart, and he's speaking forth by the Spirit. And that's the ministry. That's the expectation, right? That's the true gospel. Everything else is counterfeit. Verse 7, now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, and this is talking about the Mosaic law, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory fading though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Isn't that something? You know, think about the law. 
when the law was given. That was spectacular. So the law was given to Moses. The world had never seen anything like it before. I mean, it was an amazing thing. Romans 5.13 says, before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. So the law was given with this express purpose of showing mankind what sin was. And by extension, if you think about this, by showing what sin was, God was drawing distinction between holiness and unholiness, righteousness and wickedness. This is what the law did. It drew those distinctions. It says this is the right way and this is the wrong way, right? And I think that's pretty amazing. I mean, the law was awesome, but the law in a, in a man's heart was hampered by what? His sin nature, right? <laughs> Remember what Paul said? He said, I found that the very commandment, the law, that was intended to bring life actually brought death, right? Isn't that something? That God had presented the law, it was intended for life, but it brought death. And then he said, is the law sin? God forbid. <laughs> for I had not known sin except by what? The law. The law taught me that. He says in there, uh, he says, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, what happened? Sin sprang to life and I died, right? Because what? I was convicted for my sin. And I've talked about this in fellowship before. So the sinner turns to the law and says, well, how do I get redeemed? And the law says, don't know, right? You're a sinner. The law could not redeem. That was the frustration of the law. I mean, think about how frustrating it was. I know the right thing, but I do the wrong thing. Remember Paul said that, right? Yeah, exactly. That which I would do, I do not, but that which I would not do, that I do. I mean, it must have been infuriating to the, to the believer. I can't get this thing right. And remember, out of frustration, Paul says what? Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death, right? You're saddled with your sin, and there's no way out of it. And that's all the law could offer. I mean, if you got right down to it. It said later on in Romans 8, it talks about, but the law weakened through the flesh. It was weakened through the flesh. Now, the, remember, the law was holy and just and good. There was a glory to that law, right? It had never, nothing like it had been seen to mankind. Or be, you know, mankind had never seen anything like that. But all of a sudden, now, every time the law is spoken, I'm convicted. Um, I was thinking about this. You've heard the term touching the forbidden fruit, right? Well, the law told you what the forbidden fruit was. And sin said, touch it, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, how, that's the frustration there. So the law distinguished the forbidden fruit and the man was, or the, the sin, touch it, touch it. And that's the, uh, I mean, anybody who has kids, right? You've seen it with your kids. Don't touch that. And sometimes right in front of you, that kid will go, and touch that thing that you just told them not to touch. And that's what happens with us in this fallen nature, right? The fallen nature of man is that thing that makes us want to reach out and touch the thing that we've just been told not to touch. And that's the frustration of mankind. So verse 9, it says, if the ministry that condemns men, condemns men. So that's talking about the ministry of the law. The ministry that condemns men, if it was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And I was thinking about this. Uh, you know, the, the scientific unit of measurement for the intensity of light 
is a lumen. And it's based on a kind of an archaic term, but uh, candle power. So a lumen, I think, I think is the unit is candle power over meters squared. So it's an area, right? So that, that gives you intensity. So a lumen for a candle is actually 12.57. A regular flashlight is about 100 lumens, okay? A really good flashlight is 1,000 lumens. And then I was thinking about, I looked this up on the internet today, you know when in World War II, the big anti-aircraft lights that they shined up in the sky, this huge thing, they were called carbon arc lights. They were like five feet across. One of those lights put out 525,000 lumens. So think about that. If you were to hold your little candle up there and then you have one of those carbon arc anti-aircraft lights, it would kind of consume the light of your little candle, right? I mean, by itself, in a dark room, that candle is very powerful. It does a lot of lighting, right? And that's, of course, how the law was when it came into existence in this very dark world. But then the gospel comes along, this ministry of the Spirit, and it's like one of those big anti-aircraft lights. So what should it do with this little candle? It should consume that light, right? Doesn't that make sense? That that candle, in a sense, relative to the other light, has no glory at all. And this is what Paul was saying about the law, that while the law was glorious at one time, with this new administration... The law has no glory in respect. You see how that works? Verse 13, um, we are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. This is related to the story of Moses. He went up on Sinai, right? And he's coming down from Sinai and he had just been, you know, in the presence of God. I mean, that must have been amazing. And he had that Shekinah glory thing going on there, you know? He had the dishpan behind his head. No, so he had that glory. And he comes down from the mountain, and the people were like, oh, my gosh, I can't even look at it. Because they were so in, you know, in darkness that he was shining. It wasn't just that he had a pleasant expression on his face. He was giving off spiritual light. And people were like, whoa, right? I mean, that's cool. Well, this is what he's talking about here, or he's making a reference to. He says, we're not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while while that radiance was fading away. Now, listen to this. But their minds were made dull, for to this day that same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. See, he's using it metaphorically here. So when you're reading the Old Testament, it's as if you had this veil over your face. It has not been removed. Because only in Christ is it taken away. Very important, right? That veil remains over the face, right? Later on, I think it's in the next chapter, it says their minds were blinded. Their minds were blinded, right? Talked about the, you know, the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. Same word, right? This dulling, this, your, your mind is blinded. And it's blinded only, it's only in Christ. And that word in Christ, we see it all over the scriptures, right? What it means is in union with Christ. See that? In union with Christ. Only being in union with Christ is that that taken away, that, that dullness, right? And I think this is the problem with your Messianic Christians. Because they don't know what is in Christ means. 
They don't recognize the ascended and glorified Christ. They're still dealing with the Christ of the Gospels, right? And so if you're reading the Old Testament, which again, I would highly recommend much, much reading of the Old Testament, but it's not enlightened by the ascended and glorified Christ. So what are you getting? You're getting veiled truth. That veil is removed in Christ. Verse 15, even to this day when Moses is read, the veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, what happens? The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. So anything else? Bondage. The law is bondage. Absolute bondage. And it says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. Now listen to this. This is amazing. Are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. I just love that. It's by beholding the Lord that we are changed. It's not our fastidious adherence to the law that we are changed. It's what? Beholding the Lord. Remember Jesus talked about this when he was talking to Nicodemus. So he's talking to Nicodemus and he says, remember Nicodemus back when, you know, Moses, during the time of Moses, children of Israel are getting bitten by serpents, right? And they're dying. And so, so God told him, look, get some brass, make a serpent, put it on a pole, hold it up. And what happened? If the people were bitten and they looked at that serpent that was being raised up, what would happen? They would be healed, right? And, it, and then Jesus did what? He likened that to what would happen with him, that he would be raised and that if people looked upon him, they would be healed, right? So you have this ascended and glorified Christ being prophesied, and he's likening that to this Old Testament issue. He's saying, look, it's by beholding the Lord that we are changed into that same image, what? From glory to glory. See how that works? So not only in this administration do we have a glory that surpasses everything that the Old Testament had, but the way that we achieve it is different. It's not by adherence, faithful adherence. Remember, with the law, if you offend in one point, you offend in all points, right? It's kind of a do or die situation. But with this new ministry, this new gospel, it's beholding. It's get your vision up. Get your vision up. What is the law? Where is my vision when I'm doing the law? It's on me. Well, that's pretty dark. But if we get our vision up and we're looking at the Lord, that's where we get blessed. That's where we change. That's where we become holy and righteous is perspective. We're looking at the right thing. Uh, chapter four, verse one. Therefore, through God's mercy, we have this ministry. We don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. Rather, we have renounced the secret and shameful things. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, in the King James, it's used, it uses the term plain speech, right? We set forth the truth plainly. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So when we talk to people, we're pretty frank people, right? We just tell it like it is. We're not trying to sugarcoat it. We're not trying to say, hey, come to church with me. We got a great kids program, right? 
right? We got a great sound system. Come to church. No, that's not what it's all about. What are we doing? We're speaking not to a person's, you know, we're not trying to appeal to their amusement. We're not trying to appeal to their personality. We're not trying to appeal to their bank account. We're not trying to appeal to their, you know, influence. What are we doing? We're talking right to their soul. That's the witness. That's the witness. And we're doing it in very frank speech. We're just telling it like it is. I was saying last week, we are stating the case. That is what we're doing. We're stating the case. That's the witness. We're stating the case. This is Christianity. This is what God will do for you through Christ. I mean, it's pretty spectacular. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, he says, why do ye not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my words? And I think about that. He was talking to the Pharisees that you're going to find real quick. And there are some people who are completely precluded from understanding the truth that you're going to be speaking. Somebody reminded me this week of the verse where it says that even though they see the resurrect, someone resurrected from the dead, they still won't believe. You see what I'm saying? So don't. Don't lose hope. Don't get defeated. Speak the truth. Speak it plainly. We're dealing with a glorified Christ. You know, I thought of, I even wrote here, the blinding, this blinding that we see in other people is a witness of God. The fact that some people just can't get it. The fact that you've just laid it out for them and they still don't get it is a witness of God. I was talking last week about Brett Hume. He's a journalist. He, he's a Christian. And he said that it is, it is the most amazing thing to him, the reaction from people at the name of Jesus Christ. That when you say Jesus Christ, man, some people are just like, oh, you know, he's my savior. Other people, it brings out the absolute worst in them. Remember how they, in the uh, Gospels, how, you know, they would gnash on him with their teeth, <laughs> I mean, they, they tear their garments. Well, that, you know, that's pretty much what you see when you start talking Jesus Christ. You know, people can't stay neutral on that topic. And that, for me, is a witness that what I'm talking here, I mean, this is spiritual dynamite. I'm dealing with something that is significant. There is no logical reason why a name would have such a profound effect on people. It's just a name, right? Well, it's not just a name. It is the name. And that's, that's pretty spectacular. It goes on to verse 5. It says, We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, or in the face of Christ. Isn't that something? You know, Mike Tomberlin, my friend in North Carolina, he talks about the original creation that you had disorder and darkness, right? And God spoke, and God gave order to disorder and light to darkness. And whenever you see a God move in a situation, whether it's a person's heart or in a church or, you know, opening up a brand new area, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see order to disorder and light to darkness. Isn't that beautiful? And here it's saying that it's in the face of Jesus Christ, right? You know, just as Moses' face was radiating with that Shekinah glory, and he said, and that was a light that was fading away, we're looking at a different face, aren't we? We're looking at the face of Jesus Christ, and it's shining, you know, 525,000 lumens, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what's so cool about this. So the letter kills, 
The letter kills the law. It's all about works. It's all about works. You should know the law. There is so much insight into God's character that you can find in every law. Why did God say that? Why did God say that? I mean, we have all kinds of understanding that can come out of the law. But I'm, I'm living by a new rule, it says in the Bible. I'm living by a new rule. The, the, guy, the guys that I was talking to last week, well, what about the Ten Commandments? You're forsaking the Ten Commandments. I said, uh, my Bible says that if I walk in the love of God, I'm fulfilling the law. Well, that's exactly right. And then they want to start parsing everything and saying, well, he was talking about this, but we're talking about the Ten Commandments. Mm. Um, you see the point? The point is, is that I think people with their research can research themselves right out of a godly relationship. I think it's better just to let it stand. Go to Galatians 5. Look at verse 13, 5.13. It says, you, my brothers, were called to be free. Didn't we just hear that? But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love, right? Serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. I mean, could it be clearer? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, you will be destroyed by each other, right? Isn't that something? I mean, that's that's pretty clear. That's pretty clear. So I, I don't know what to, you know, I these people want to parse this information, fine, parse away. But you're going to parse yourself right out of walking by the Spirit. And that's where all the blessings of God are. Do you see the point? Now, we can sit there and we can say, you know, well, I figured it out, right? Love people and never get around to loving people. So there's a next step, which is now start doing it, right? I mean, you've taken the first step of learning that you should love. Now love. Now get out there and love. Think of people more highly than you think of yourself. And we've talked about it in this fellowship. Well, what is love? What is love of God? It's really what it comes down to is you love what God loves, right? It starts with I love God and then I love what God loves. So it's not, you know, my personal preferences. It's about what God loves. This person who would normally be my cup of tea, they're not my personality, you know, that's not somebody that I'd usually hang out with, but God loves that person, and I love that person. And doesn't that make sense? And this is an abdication of you. You're not the center of the show anymore. And when you're not the center of the show, it's amazing what you can do, right? You can love people that are unlovable, right? Verse 7, it says, but... We have this treasure in jars of clay. That's interesting, isn't it? Remember what Paul said, you know, I used to think so much, so highly of myself. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? I was this, I was that. He says, but what do I do? I count these things, but dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Here, Paul's saying, eh, I'm just a jar of clay. It's not me, but what resides in me that's special. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Remember what he said way back at the beginning. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. See, that's where Christianity goes off the rails is when the minister is all about me. Look at me. And Paul says, uh, I am and you're a clay jar, right? Nothing special there. And that's what Paul says. He says, now... He's talking about, you know, Paul and Apollos. He says, now he that minister, he that he that soweth and he that minister are the, are nothing. I mean, he refers to himself as nothing. 
that's not just him being self-effacing in order to, you know, curry favor. This is genuinely the belief of Paul. Paul felt in the flesh, I am nothing. That the goodness in me is the Christ in me and not me. That's right. You're exactly right. That's, that's what it's all about. And as we behold Christ, that's when we are changed. Look at verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry about in our bodies the death of Jesus. That's our old nature, right? We always carry about in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. That's the new nature. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. I love that. And did Paul go through some persecution? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Verse 12, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work within you. It is written, I believe, therefore have I spoken, because we know that the one who raised up the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. I love that. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And see, that's the outreach of the church. That's the outreach of the church. It's me getting my gaze on Jesus and then telling you about it, and you getting your gaze on Jesus. And, and, and that's the movement of the word. You know, you, it, it, this isn't something that we sit around and, you know, contact, you know, uh, what do they call them? Um, advertising campaigns, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, sending out a placard or, or a paper and saying, look, we have an upcoming event. I think that's fine. But but we're not relying on our, on, on our man-made ability to go and reach people. We're relying on Christ in us. That's the true outreach of the church. Remember, the Lord added daily to the church such as would be saved. Who was doing the adding? The Lord. So I think a lot of times we just need to get out of his way. Um, verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, and that's absolutely true. I see it in the mirror. Yet inwardly we are renewed day by day. Isn't that refreshing? <laughs> That every day God's spirit is getting renewed within you. Wonderful. For our light and momentary trouble, which is any trouble that any of us would ever have in this life. It, it, according to the word of God, it is light and momentary. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving in us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Well, how is it doing that? Because when you bear up, you walk by the Spirit, you bear up under persecution, and you keep doing the Word in season, out of season, you're getting rewarded. You're getting blessed. And that's for eternity. Verse 18, so we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We're fixing our eyes. I love it. I wrote a note here, the legalist has his eyes fixed on the law, on his imperfections, and on his self-righteous religion. We don't want that. The true believer has his eyes fixed on Christ, the ascended and glorified Christ. Go to chapter 5, and we'll end up here. Look in verse 14. It says, for Christ's love compels us. Compels us. I love that. The King James says, for Christ's love 
constrains us. You know what it means to constrain? It means that you are you're you're like within two sides. You're kind of funneled into a a way of living. Uh, you know, and that's what Christ's love does for us. It kind of funnels us towards something. It says, "For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced." That one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, your life is a purchased possession. It's no longer your own. Now, I know we say that, and and I know even when we say that, that's pretty profound. But I want to more and more live that, right? I want to live that. I want to absolutely, in my decisions and my thoughts, I want to live truly that my life is not my own. It's been purchased. It's been purchased with a price. It says, verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I don't particularly care for that translation. We, uh, We don't view anyone after the flesh. It goes on to say, though we once regarded Christ that way, in the Gospels, right? We do so no longer. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That our Christ is the ascended and glorified Christ. That's who we relate to. And when somebody comes along and says, eh, I want to put you back under the law. Nope, sorry. Not what we're all about here. All right? So that's what I wanted to share today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness and your, your word. And I thank you, Father, for this spiritual walk. Father, that we can manifest that goodness in our lives, that, Father, we keep our perspective looking at Christ. Father, we recognize that we are not our own, that we've been bought with a price. And thank you, Father, that we can walk in love and walk by that wonderful Holy Spirit that you've given us in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. It felt like a burden, but once I could grasp it, you took me further, further than Say it's